0: The histamine is what regulates excitement and arousal and wakefulness. That's why antihistamines put people to sleep. So imagine if, you know, you just can't really sleep that well. It may not even be brain fog or anxiety or hives or noticeable bloating. It might just be your brain's just on a little bit too much. So then you go get a Xanax from the doctor. That'll put you to sleep, but you still have the high histamine, you know,
1: Hello and welcome back to the Your Great Podcast with your host, Unique Hammond. It's been a little while since I've put out a podcast. I quietly took a little time off over the summer and now I'm back. My first guest is Dr. Tyler Penster. I adore chatting with him. He's so open and honest and has a refreshing approach. I'm really excited to present our conversation today. We talk about The sneaky little herbs that chelate your iron. So if you're a lady and you have low iron and you're drinking turmeric lattes, maybe not so much. Are there times for these herbs? Absolutely. But if you are low in iron, there are things to consider. So I'm excited for this conversation. I always learn so much chatting with Dr. P and I hope you enjoy our chat. If you've been on your health journey for a long time and feel like something is missing, there's a missing piece in your story, I do believe that Dr. Tyler P would be an amazing investigator. He is a wealth of knowledge and experience in the area of personalizing supplements for your genetics. And as you know, I am not a supplement pusher. He and I actually talk about this. We are opposite ends of the spectrum, but I do think if one is going to walk down that path, to have somebody tailor it to you is the best case scenario. I also wanted to announce that my 12-week live group coaching will be opening back up in January. There is a wait list on my website. So if you'd like to join that, you'll be the first to know when it opens. Space will be limited. I also will be offering ongoing coaching to my current clients who have a plan. So I'll be sending out a note on that. If you are on my newsletter, you'll get it. If not, sign up if you're interested in hanging out with the Beanie community and healing together, it's pretty great. All right, enjoy our conversation and I hope to chat with you soon. Dr. Tyler Panzner, welcome back to the, your great podcast. I'm excited. I've been waiting to do this for a while. Every time you post videos, it just hits home. Everything about the adaptogens, kind of the wild west of supplements right now, where I see it every day in my practice. As you and I have talked before, I'm not a supplement practice, I'm a food forward practice because I see way too many issues with adaptogens in my clients, from anxiety to brain fog. I see way too many issues with most of the supplements that I see. So a lot of times in my practice, I pull everybody off supplements. And if they want to supplement, you know, certain things I'll bring in, but mostly I've been referring them out to you and saying, hey, figure out what's actually right for your genetics, because I think that there's a much bigger story here than just go out and get a supplement. So I'm really excited and honored to have you here again. Thank you for joining. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And it's, you know, ironic. I'm more of a supplement forward practice, but it's ironic. We're, you know, still friends, different ways (laughs) to skin the cat here, but, you know, it's data driven hyper-personalized supplement forward. On the flip side, I see a lot of people with the foods can be problematic too. You know, whether it's a sulfur thing or histamine thing and, you know, you don't need the genes. It could just really shorten that time horizon for where you could kind of figure something out, eliminate a lot of that guesswork. So you're saving time. We know time is money, saving money that way. But uh, yeah, super excited to be chatting. Last episode was uh, an absolute blast. I'm sure we'll have a good time again.
1: Yeah, I have, I'm in- working with a few clients that we now share and they are giving me feedback on the supplements that you're giving them and they don't have any of the side effects. So we are on kind of opposite ends of the spectrum, but actually I feel like that is why it's symbiotic because yes. because I know my lane and my lane is understanding food and and I really listen to symptoms and where you're executing Based on genetics, I'm really listening to their feedback and kind of shifting the pieces on the board there on a more, you know, food forward, understanding level, intuitive level with them of like, what's going on. But then there's things like you said, that until you get into the genetics, it's hard to say that you should just run out and supplement with something.
0: I don't know if I spoke about this on the last time we chatted, but doctors need to go to medical school for what, a decade, more or less to learn about drugs and how to prescribe them, there is zero, zero, literally zero training whatsoever on anyone can either be, you know, even if you're not even a certified health coach or a doctor, anyone could have their health practice and, you know, just recommend supplements. I do think anyone, anyone should be able to access whatever natural vitamin supplements they want. I don't want to take away that right from people, but I firmly believe if you're an expert If you're a healthcare practitioner, whether health certified coach, MD, DO, PhD, all of the above, I think you should have to take, even if it's like, you know, four or five hours, everyone rips on doctors for four to five hours of nutrition training in medical school, which isn't a lot, but Hey, at least it's something you're not getting any training on supplements. So I think you should be required by law to have, and I'd be, I'm making that holistic genetic health mastery course. I'm super excited about, you know, and I want to eventually continue to hone that, get feedback and have that be a nation global wide education system for how certain supplements can do things you may not be knowing about. So yeah, it's, it's mind blowing to me that anyone can recommend anything. And I see so many crazy weird things like people using glutathione with NAC. And I'm just like, why are you giving yourself what the precursor to make glutathione while giving yourself directly made glutathione. And then on top of this person may be sulfur sensitive. Those are two very high sulfur supplements. They think they have histamine issues from detoxing. You're not detoxing. I mean, you might be, but a lot of people I work with, you're not detoxing for six months straight. The high sulfur is causing histamine release in you. And that is never gonna go away because the issue is, and that's what's difficult. How do you know if someone doesn't feel good from the supplements? If it's a detox reaction, which, as we know, it sucks short term, but you know that's the goal long term. Versus the just the supplement not aligning with them. You know, you need to have the data that I'm looking at to see is this actually raising your adrenaline? The supplement, or are you busting up in a biofilm? There's LPS going on, and then that's causing the histamine release, which you know sucks in the moment. There's things we could do to kind of soften the blow, but. You know, trying to navigate that is something I'm still kind of learning as I go because I'm constantly growing. This is a brand new angle to be approaching things, and you know, I started adding in uh, phosphatidylcholine, body bio PC. You know, big brand, love that product. But I look at people that have mutations in how well they make phosphatidylcholine. A lot of people have mutations; they can't convert choline into phosphatidylcholine. Giving those people that have three, four, five, six mutations in that gene. We give them some PC and boom, they'll get detox reactions right away after nothing for so long because their cells, particularly their liver cells have been dying for this phosphatidylcholine all along. That doesn't mean that other people won't benefit from it. But, you know, whether you want to try an herbal blend to do liver support or you want to try a phosphatidylcholine, at least now we could figure out, do you really need all of that or do you just need the PC in there? And it goes even further like i think i had four clients that had eight to ten mutations on this gene which virtually every mutation i checked was mutated barely working and what do you know two of them had all have alzheimer's disease and one of them had parkinson's the other one just had a lot of mold issues and what do you know you go look up that gene the p-e-m-t gene peer-reviewed studies show that it increases the risk for neurodegenerative diseases And it's like, I wish I had a time machine to go back in time. Their cells, 10 mutations there, their cells have been voraciously hungry for phosphatidylcholine their entire lives. And if you ask me, yes, eggs are a great source, but how many eggs can you really eat every day? If you have 10 mutations there, you're gonna have a much higher need than someone with one or two mutations. Then it also comes into play. Like I mentioned, eggs are high in sulfur. Some people might have egg allergies. That's where you kind of got to, like go through the weeds and kind of figure out a way to work. Like, does this person, maybe eggs work for them. They just need a little more Molly Bedina when they have their eggs, you know? Cause sometimes I work with people where certain, some people, you gotta be people with where they're at. I'm sure you're familiar with this. It's like, you can't expect everyone to drop everything and be this perfect health guru always and forever. (laughs) Some people, the eggs, they like the way they taste. They're easy to make. It fits into their daily schedule for good nutrients in the morning. Even if they're sulfur sensitive, you know, maybe they have to take a little molybdenum drops beforehand and then they could tolerate it fine, but grand scheme, that's a net benefit for them. You know, we're always going to be doing something wrong or not perfect. You know, no one does everything perfectly. You got to find your poison and let it slowly kill you. But that makes sense. Just try to control <laughs> as many controllables as you can, because yeah.
1: Wait, so what are these drops and what do they do?
0: Yeah. Seeking health has drops of molybdenum. So molybdenum is the micronutrient that the SUOX genes, S-U-O-X, these are the genes that break down sulfites, break down sulfur in your body. So you can add mutations that make your cells pump out extra sulfur all the time. So you'll break down homocysteine into sulfur, into ammonia more so than usual I see those people have high ammonia issues, sulfur sensitivity, and then the enzyme that breaks it down, those can also be mutated. So if I see someone with mutations on each side, wow, you know, oh yeah, I thought I was allergic to eggs. Well, no, you're probably not allergic to the eggs. You're sulfur sensitive, which the end result is still a histamine response. So it feels virtually identical, but it's a sulfur issue. So molybdenum is what those SUOX genes use to break down sulfur. So if you're sulfur sensitive, having some of those drops, usually the multivitamins i like for people have some of the molybdenum. You could also add a little bit in there. I'm sulfur sensitive. You know, if I have more than two or three whole eggs, like sometimes my wife likes eggs in the morning. I usually have a smoothie, but some days I'm like, you know what? Screw it. Make me some eggs. I'll have like five whole eggs and I'll feel that little bit of brain fog come on that little bit of a histamine response. And I'm like, oh, no, I can't really do that. But adding some of that molybdenum in ahead of time can really help with that. And that's, that's kind of a good example of how I like to train people instead of changing your whole diet. Cause a lot of people kind of set with their diet, they eat healthy foods. You know, most people I work with are already eating healthy. They're doing what they think they should be doing. They're still not getting results. Cause it's a little more complex for that. In their case, I tell them, listen, keep having your eggs every morning, start taking molybdenum, start with one drop beforehand, then two drops the next day, then three drops. If you feel better, that means it's a sulfur issue, you know? So rather than telling you revamp your whole diet right out of the gate, sometimes I'll give people tools to help your body process that like, or like gluten digestive enzymes. Don't change the diet at all. Take gluten digestive enzymes with every carb meal for a week. A lot of people are like, oh wow, like I feel so much better. They were hesitant to go gluten-free because they think it's really difficult. Then they realize how much it's holding them back. Then they're like, oh, I'll go gluten-free, no problem, because I want to feel how I feel right now.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, and I am curious what your personal perspective on this is. Why are people so allergic to food? Why do we have all these mutations? Like what the HE double toothpicks is going on that we don't, we can't just eat.
0: Yeah, great question. So I personally have this theory that I think everyone is allergic to everything to some degree because if you think about it, why would some people, like, I think everyone's immune cells respond slightly to like any protein that comes into your body, especially foods, they, I think they could cause some sort of a reaction, but certain mutations in how your immune cells, so your immune cells have these proteins, they'll come, you'll get, you'll digest food, you'll take in the protein, they'll chop it up and they'll put it on the surface of the cell. And imagine like a like a bloodhound giving a little piece of clothing to go find like a cold case file. I got to sniff something. The immune cells will recognize that. And based on how it's cut up and how it's presented will dictate if your immune cells recognize it as normal, bad, or very bad. So these are the mutations that dictate allergies. They also dictate like those HLA genes. Everyone talks about for mold sensitivity. It's the same. It's incredibly complex. It's like many different genes that can make this up, but those mutations dictate how you present them and how your body responds. But then it also depends, you know, let's just say two people recognize peanuts as kind of bad. So mild reaction. I have a mild reaction to peanuts. Like if I have a lot of peanut butter, I'll feel like some brain fog, maybe not sleep great, but I never gotten hives or itching like that. But then imagine one person has mutations and how they break down histamine. The other one doesn't. So even though they're both equally as allergic one person is going to be more sensitive to the histamine. So they've released the same amount of histamine. They're the same amount of allergic to it. One person breaks it down much slower. So that's going to linger for a lot longer, possibly more symptoms. So you keep peeling back the layers. There's so many layers on which step is the actual issue. Why these occur, that's a really good question. I mean, off the top of my head, I think... Mutations happen in nature initially randomly by chance. So you can have, it's called the de novo mutation, Latin from new. So out of nowhere, it's not inherited. I would have to think that many, many years ago, you know, millennia ago, these mutations formed, they may have conferred some sort of benefit. So there's some mutations that can make you less at risk for bacterial infections, but more at risk for viral infections. So imagine like the whole caveman evolutionary biology analogy, if you got a mutation that made you, you know, less sensitive to bacteria, more at risk for viruses and you lived in an area that was mostly bacterial issues, you see how that could get passed on. But now in today's world with the global global connect- connectivity, we're all in environments we didn't evolve to live in. Like think I think of like a Siberian husky, the dog with the big fur, you got to be really careful if you have one of those in a hot climate because they didn't evolve for that. That's kind of how we are now. So I would think that If someone's carrying mutations that make them allergic to peanuts, I would think that their ancestors probably weren't consuming peanuts, but that makes sense. But now, since we all trade this food globally, you could be exposed to foods that you may have not been exposed to evolutionarily.
1: Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Because to have an allergy, it's basically layers of the immune system marking something as a problem right? Like it Mm -hmm. goes through checkpoints. I think of it as checkpoints at the, like at the, at the airport, you go through checkpoints, like this protein goes through checkpoints and multiple layers of the immune system have to flag it and go, Whoa, we got a problem here. You know, let's mount this histamine response. Right. Do you see that people who have a ton of genetic mutations and histamine issues? Is it, Simply genetic, or do you think there's a there's a combination of gut health with it as well, where things are maybe getting in Mm -hmm. to the body, not you know, direct the proper routes to get it. Yeah,
0: no, I mean it's always a combination of things. You know, I think like Huntington's disease is I think the only real instance I could think of that is solely genetic. Like you have that gene, you are you have that hunting gene, Huntington or hunting gene if that's mutated you are going to get Huntington's disease and your parent, one of your parents had Huntington's disease. Like that's just how it works. Everything else is always a combination of these things. You know, I'll never be that guy saying it's always genetics all the time. You know, people should be running the other way, you know, but (laughs) I just think that, you know, if there's a pie chart of perfect health, you know, you have nutrition, sleep, connection with others, sense of purpose, genetics, and, you know, that piece of the genetics pie, I just think is by far, the least explored there's way there's relative there's so many other healers on so many other nutritionists sleep coaches wellness all these things but no one's looking at the gene component so some people it might be you know thrown out a number here 12 percent of their issue other people maybe 80 percent. you know my job is to kind of take that slice of the pie out of the pizza pie so that's no longer a problem i did think of the histamine bucket the analogy everyone thinks of yeah. what could be adding so you're what you're really feeling is the histamine being the high histamine in your body from an allergy. Now, what histamine are you consuming? Like I'm very histamine sensitive. Coffee's high in histamine. I actually have instant espresso diluted a lot in cold water. I don't really like the taste. So it's, it's a watery taste, but I kind of just drink that in the morning and with my smoothie. And if it's allergy season, my allergies are probably 98% better than they used to be. But either way, if it's allergy season, I notice I get very, very minor brain fog from the instant espresso because think of the bucket. My bucket is already partially filled from the external out, al- even though I'm not sneezing or anything, my histamine, I'm throwing out a number here, but, you know, one hundred percent filled, you're like really not doing well. you really feel those symptoms. When do you start feeling symptoms? I'm going to throw out a number here. Let's just say seventy percent of seventy percent you start to feel it. So if my bucket without allergy season is, let's just say at a 20% allergy season, it's a 40%. So there's less wiggle room. I can, it's, I'm way less able to consume high histamine foods if it's allergy season. Mm -hmm. If I have, you know, if I have a slice of pizza, I do okay with that. Tomatoes can release histamine, but if I have a slice of pizza and then I have a PB and J a couple hours later, I'll feel more brain fog from the peanut butter.
1: Wow. Wow.
0: You get what I'm saying? Because that's how you got to really dissect this. And once you understand the influences of, and then forget about it, throwing, you know, mold viruses, you know, histamine is what gets released for LPS, all these things. Like you mentioned, leaky gut, absolutely let LPS in. That's going to be piggybacking on all these other components. So this is what I try to educate my clients about. You know, you need to understand all the possible contributors. Like these are things I tell myself like, Oh, Like histamine is an excitatory neurotransmitter. So it can affect people's sleep a lot. So if if I'm thinking, okay, tomorrow's a really big day for me. I need to be in my A game. I got to sleep well. I am not going to be going near anything, even the tiny bit of tomatoes or any pickles. Like I am not going near anything, possibly high histamine or I'm remotely allergic to no peanut butter at all that whole afternoon. Like I would even, not even, even the day before, because that could minorly throw off my sleep. And if I have a big day tomorrow, I want to be well-rested. Like I I like I said, I don't consume tomatoes. A couple of months ago, my wife weighed dinner, chicken, pasta, veggies. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to have a little bit of that tomato sauce you have. I'll be fine. Why not? I have it. Goes down fine. I go to bed an hour later, hour or two later. I wake up in the middle of the night with the weirdest like, anxiety, like restlessness I've ever had. Like... What is, I had to go downstairs, like chug half a bottle of CBD, like get melatonin. I was like, so up, what is that? That's the histamine from the that the tomatoes liberated. So got into my system, took a little bit of time. I like melatonin, that initially helped me go to bed. But then the second I rolled over to like, you know you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, instead of me being like waking up for a second, not even opening my eyes and going back to bed, high histamine, high adrenaline. So the second I came out of unconsciousness, that was like, whoa, what is going on? And imagine dialing that back. Like, Even if it's not something as big as that, people wonder why they can't sleep. Mutations are not, I tell people. You should be having low histamine dinners, no matter who you are. Mm. How many people have tomato sauce with dinner? A lot of people do. And tomatoes will always liberate histamine in people. So it'll raise histamine in the blood. It just depends how quickly you could break it down. But that doesn't mean if you don't have this mutation that that little tip or trick or whatever, won't benefit you.
1: What are what would you say are the top five histamine foods that people don't think of as histamine foods? Like yeah, coffee. So the,
0: that's a yeah, one. That, that's one. The main ones I tell people because when I go into the food category, people can. The last thing I'd want to do is have someone on a call with me and be like, "Okay, great, this sounds awesome. Thank you so much." They hang up the phone, they start tweaking out because they got to like eliminate all these foods. You know, I don't want to be adding any more fear. I try to tell people, you know, if I work with people that have sensitivity to histamine, gluten, oxalates, salicylates, people have all of those. I'm like, listen, go gluten-free, avoid some histamine foods. Let's start there. You know, and then you can't avoid all these things all at once. We will get there. But for me, the main things I tell people to avoid, you said coffee, tomatoes, vinegar. So like apple cider vinegar, pickles, pasta salads, and then fermented things, kombucha, kimchi, sauerkraut, possibly kefir as well. You know, they say avocados and meats can have that. Cold cuts, yes, but I'm very sensitive to histamine and regularly cooked meat isn't a huge issue for me because I don't want the people to avoid all meat too. You know, those are the ones that I've seen are like the biggest. I like to tell people the things that are very high or high, eliminate those. Don't try to eliminate anything that has histamine. You're going to be pulling your hair out going crazy. So yeah, can you kind you, of get what can I'm, you
1: eat day day old food? Like, do you have that kind of histamine where some people can't eat day old food? Yeah.
0: All? So and that's something I do bring up as well. My wife makes we'll make like ground beef for like a week or so and like rice as well. And I do okay with that. I mm-hmm. wonder if it's certain types of food might be more susceptible to the bacteria, you know, increasing that histamine content. But aside from the meat that's kind of made, seasoned, cooked and stored away properly. We don't really eat out. If we do eat out, I eat a lot. So I don't really ever have leftovers. I'll eat my wife's food, her leftovers too. So (laughs) we don't do too many leftovers, but aside from those foods, cold cuts and the leftover foods, I try to tell people. But again, a lot of people like, oh, I have leftovers every day because it's easier for me to do that. And that's why I tell them, listen, don't have leftover pasta with tomato sauce. Don't have leftover high histamine <laughs> foods, you know, have, keep doing the leftovers. I don't want to completely dismantle your life all at once. Cause right now too, you know, I don't do the full fledged all in life coaching with everything. You know, I'm a supplement guy. I give you recommendation on foods, but like, I'm not gonna be there holding your hand, helping you rebuild your whole life. So I'm not gonna be here and tell you to completely dismantle everything. I'll dismantle your supplements that your other doctor put you on. Cause that's what I know, but I'm not gonna be able to be there to kind of help you rebuild all this. So I don't wanna tear that down. You know, it's all about navigating. You don't wanna be scaring people too much. A lot of people I work with, again, they're doing all the right things. They're still not feeling well. They've tried all these different things. And, you know, they really are just kind of losing hope. So I try to get them some level of improvement, get them going on the right direction. But again, no one can be perfect all the time. You can improve, you can improve, you know, 30% in between each follow-up that we have. That's three follow-ups and you're pretty much on your way. You know, if I try to move too many pieces, people get overwhelmed. And I feel like in the health space, especially holistic space, people get very overwhelmed and it gets very very complicated because there's so much easily accessible information.
1: Absolutely and there's so much conflicting information yes. which i think another thing if somebody is struggling with finding their equilibrium and homeostatic state that you know thriving resilient i do think that genetic testing i've done it for myself i've done it for my family just to see what's going on and and it's amazing I don't I'm sure you see this where your clients feel so validated where yes. my older daughter when she finally she really drag as you know she really dragged her feet on getting it and then she mm-hmm. did and it was like oh you are you have the gene for ADHD and she's like I know it you yeah. know it was like yeah. I could feel it but you you know, so it it can be really validating and that can set you free because you're no longer bumping up against the invisible. Why is it that this person can eat all of these things or take this supplement and I can't, why do I get this anxiety? Which leads me to adaptogens. Talk to me Mm. about all the ways adaptogens can go wrong.
0: Yeah. So, you know, adaptogens are a very, very broad, broad term, things that help you deal with stress and, A lot of these things get lumped into the same category. The two good examples I like to give are rhodiola rosea and ashwagandha. These are very, very opposing herbs by how they function, yet they're considered both adaptogens. Ashwagandha, and I'm not a fan of either of these. Ashwagandha, that is very good for, I mean, they're both, and here's the thing, adaptogens both lower stress, but they do it very different mechanisms. So ashwagandha- lower it's very very good at lowering cortisol not taking that away from it i have used it rarely if people are really anxious and not responding really bad detox i do use that but what it does is that it blocks this receptor the serotonin 1a receptor so it'll block that that's the same thing that ssris do so that's why a lot of people report a lot of SSRI, like side effects, very, very numbed possible sexual dysfunction, very, very numb. They don't, they're not anxious anymore, but they don't really feel any good either. They're kind of in that neutral zone. And that's what a lot of people on the medication. They feel kind of like zombied out. They're like, I'm not depressed, but I'd rather feel me. I'd rather feel too much than too little. You know what I mean? I'd rather have the highs behind the, that's my. that's my life. That's a high dopamine, high adrenaline guy. The highs are amazing. The lows are fucking miserable, but that's the name of the game. So it blocks that. Now, one of the mutations I check is that same receptor, mutations. Mutations in that receptor are linked to anxiety, depression, less likely to be in romantic relationships if you have this mutation because it's making that receptor less sensitive to serotonin. So you're already lacking, if you're already genetically lacking that receptor signaling and ashwagandha blocks that you're going to be at extra risk. So if I see someone with that mutation, I tell them, A, CBD, CBG, and lavender all bind the receptor. So if you need a little more love there, they can bind that. And that could be exactly what you need. But ashwagandha would be your absolute kryptonite. So I see, honestly, I've heard very, very few ashwagandha success stories, yet I see it marketed everywhere all the time. And I mean, I'm pretty sure all that I've done is I've never had someone like Ashwagandha gone to long term. I know it's just because of the people that are coming to work with me or not. I'm sure it helps some people, but it'll help people in the short term with their stress. But then over time, time, the days get blurred together. Then suddenly you're kind of numbed out and you don't really know how you got here. You know, it's going to be a slow burn. Use it short periods of time to stabilize, but I wouldn't be using that long term. Then on the flip side, you have rhodiola rosea. Rhodiola can also lower cortisol. But it also blocks the gene that breaks down adrenaline, dopamine, and serotonin. So you can have mutations in that gene as well. Now, that means that a low do- like if I take rhodiola, I need to take literally like one-tenth of a dose. I'll have a better mood because I have higher neurotransmitters. But if I were to take anything near a normal dose and a normal supplement, I am so tense and anxious because my genes that break down adrenaline are already slower so since they're already slower, I block it even more though. They're called MAO or COMT inhibitors. They block one of these two genes that break down adrenaline by far the most common supplement mistake. I see so many herbs, rosemary, oregano, methylene blue, grapeseed extracts, rhodiola, Chinese skullcap. So many of these commonly used herbs also block these enzymes. Now, ashwagandha and rhodiola aren't toxic. They're not d- damaging your cells. They're just modulating your cells in a way that makes you not feel good. Rhodiola, I see a lot of people use rhodiola for energy boosting, like some holistic practitioners, but they're people on rhodiola that come work with me. But to me, if you need to raise energy by blocking the breakdown of adrenaline, something else is going on. You know what I mean? Like I don't, to me, that's not a root cause fix. A root cause fix is, Clean up the histamine, any ammonia, like all these other aspects that help you make energy like they had in some pre-workouts. It's fine to take here and there, but I see all the time people not knowing why they're more tense, more short with their partner, why they can't sleep as well, why they just feel tense all the time. A lot of the times it's the rhodiola supplement. And a lot of these adaptogens are in a lot of adrenal support supplements. I remember one of the first posts I made about the COMT MAO stuff. I got comments like, no, that's BS. I'm fine. I must've gotten 30 DMs from people. Oh my God. I checked my adrenal support supplement. Like you said, we're talking, it has like, and then you also have like quercetin, rutin, and luteal, all these other polyphenols also do this. So there'll be adrenal support supplements with six of these supplements in there. And they're like, oh my God, I stopped taking it today was the best day of my life in the past year. Because I've been taking that every single day, five pills, plus the adrenal cortex, plus these herbs, plus this, plus that. I really wonder what people actually feel better on that long-term and can tolerate that. Like, I'm sure they're out there, but all that I've seen have been horror stories. And that's what really makes me wonder these supplements. Like, how many people are they really harming? You know, it's nothing intentional, of course. I guarantee you the people that make these supplements don't even know that they're doing this. You know, you don't need to know this.
1: Well, why are they stacking so many herbs that are doing, that are doing the same thing in the same product? Great
0: great question because they're a probably just seeing, Hey, other people use this. So we're going to use it, but B they're, like I said, they don't, they probably don't even know they're not using those herbs. They're using quercetin for histamine. They're using rhodiola for cortisol. Little do they know both of them raise adrenaline. So they're not they're not purposely stacking that mechanism together, but this is why as a pharmacologist, I'm able to see, I can look at it. That is a fucking nightmare for anyone that's remotely prone to stress. I would stay far, far away from that. So ashwagandha is great for calming people down, but it also can cause a big numbing effect overall. And like I mentioned, a lot of these herbs, the detox herbs people use can, and can raise adrenaline. And the more I research, the more I realize so many, pretty much all these herbs affect adrenaline. So like, or like even the mitochondrial in here, like resveratrol does that. And it's like, oh, I'm thinking resveratrol. My mitochondrial are so much better. I have so much more energy. Does it help with mitochondria? Yes. But how much of your energy boost is because it's raising your adrenaline? So how do you really know, but they're marketed as mitochondrial support? Well, you want mitochondria to make more ATP, to make more energy, but then if you're making your adrenaline even higher, it's going to be a very tense feeling energy. And I don't care who you are, what supplement you're taking. If your supplement makes you feel less safe in your body, makes you feel more stressed and anxious. And if it affects your sleep, there is no place for that supplement because that is the key limiting stress and optimizing sleep are the two along with sunlight. are like I think the three best things you could do that are, you know, diet's a lot more complex than that. You know what I mean? But just make sure you're getting that sleep and all these things.
1: Do these herbs also block iron absorption? I think I saw you posting about something about the polyphenols or yeah. or like turmeric and like yeah. what are are there other things that we're not looking at with taking all these herbs and supplements? Yeah, well believe
0: it or not, uh, virtually all the things I mentioned that raise adrenaline also chelate iron out of the body. And a lot of these also affect the metabolism of prescription medications. So like I I dive into this more into this mastery course I'm making, but like a lot of familiar faces show up a lot of the time and anyone listening, if you feel good taking that curcumin, go for it, you know, but you have like certain things will prevent gut absorption, you know, quercetin, rutin, luteolin. Then you have things that will chelate iron once it's already in the body, you know, kava, berberine Cassandra, milk thistle rosemary these are all things that either way whether they prevent you from absorbing iron or they pull out what's already in your body these are all commonly used things now people ask what about if i'm cooking with it i think if you're doing amounts for cooking i don't really see that being as much of an issue you know but if you're taking a concentrated 20x concentrated rosemary oil That's much different than cooking with some rosemary. Same thing with the turmeric curcumin. If you're using some for taste, that's fine. But yeah, a lot of these things also pull iron out of the body, especially a problem with women. Imagine if you have mutations. So there are mutations that can make you not absorb as much iron in the gut, not transported as well, not stored as well. Imagine throwing that on top of being put on a curcumin. Or I literally see people routinely doing curcumin plus berberine plus quercetin plus rutin and like across two products they have all of those things and you know it's problematic for numerous different reasons it's all about the dosages and how many things you're stacking together it's also how much iron are you consuming and how well you're storing it so it depends on the individual when i first started my practice i almost thought i was being too detailed focused like does this really matter but now that i've seen hundreds of people i've realized no this stuff really does matter if someone has any form of iron deficiency, let alone anemia, you should be removing every possible iron chelator right out the gate, get them all out of there. Now, the problem is, with some people, curcumin is a very good anti-inflammatory. So if someone has horrible rheumatoid arthritis, we better make sure we replace that with a proper anti-inflammatory. Otherwise, their pain is going to come back. So that's where it can kind of get tricky sometimes. Like I've had clients where really bad rheumatoid arthritis um joint issues. We pull out the curcumin. We'll try like a Boswellia or something that to my knowledge doesn't chelate iron. And they're like, oh my God, I can't even get out of bed. The pain is so severe. And I'm like, wow, like go back on it for now. We got to go back to the drawing board. You know what I mean? Because like the anemia may be an issue for you. But if you can't even get out of bed because the pain is so bad, that turns into the lesser evil for you.
1: Can a fish oil come in as an anti inflammatory in a similar fashion? Yep. Okay.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's actually mutations. So TNF alpha is one of the main inflammatory molecules that gets tested in blood work. You can have mutations that mean you produce excess TNF alpha. People with this mutation in studies respond better to fish oil if they have this mutation. So that's something to look into. And again, rather than guessing between, you know, CBD oil, fish oil, you know, curcumin, all these commonly used things which one makes the most sense for you. You know, can you stackle them together of course, but that's more money. You may not need all that support, but if you have a higher need for omega-3s, fish oil makes a lot of sense. But if you're hiss- sensitive to histamine, I love cod liver oil, but that causes histamine issues in a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Actually organ meats can as well from what I've seen. So dosage makes a lo- matters a lot, but if you're sensitive to histamine, you need more omega-3s. I might have you try a low dose of an algae-based omega three. You know, starting out because I'm a big fan of stabilize people first with the supplements, get them in a good spot. Then they could slowly try to swap out for foods, and then at least now you know. I swap out this supplement. I start eating this. I feel worse. Okay, that's not for me. But you got to feel what normal feels like. So many people are constantly inflamed, constant brain fog, constant high histamine. They're not going to notice if those onions from the, the sulfur from the onions is making them worse. Mm-hmm. The, the, all they know is just pain, discomfort, brain fog. So my job starting out is to get them back to normal as soon as possible. Once you feel what normal feels like, then you can understand what triggers you, which is a double-edged sword. Cause once I healed myself, that's once I realized I am so sensitive to everything. It feels like, you know, it's, that's part of the healing journey is realizing how many things could be problematic. And again, we're talking eggs, garlic, tomatoes, you know, we're not talking about, you know, a Burger King Whopper or something, you know?
1: Well, you're talking about the building blocks of a good breakfast or, you know, yep. a good soup right there, yep. right? So, yep. or a good pasta sauce. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting. And I I think I would imagine that tomatoes fall into the nightshade family of yes. peppers and all. Yeah. So you basically yep. are eliminating a pretty broad, Yeah. Yeah, there's
0: there's not much information about nightshade sensitivity, but from what I've experienced, I've noticed peppers as well. Just do my own experiment. Peppers, I don't believe peppers are very high in histamine. They're high in nightshades. Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty certain I have some sort of a nightshade sensitivity there. But again, any food allergy or sensitivity you have or biotoxin infection will be worse if you also break down the histamine slower, as I mentioned oh. before.
1: How did they figure this out with genetics? Like, how did they, you know, you, you and I did a reading together and you were like, yeah, you break down adrenaline slowly and Mm -hmm. you have high histamine. How did they figure out these genes are related to that? Like that just is mind blowing to me.
0: Yeah. So usually what they can do is they can, I think how to word this. They can basically genetically engineer like bacteria and they can give them a human gene. Now that's far from making the bacteria human, but they can give them a hum- They can in- give them that exact genetic sequence, and the bacteria will express it. So you can do bacterial studies um, to kind of see what's going on with that. So you can give them the regular form of a human histamine breakdown gene. Give them that. Give other bacteria the mutated form that happens in humans. Give them that. Then you can basically test to see what is the histamine content inside of these bacteria you know kind of a simplification but overall you know you give them the different versions of this gene and then you see the ones with the mutants have higher levels of histamine and for me personally that's enough information to me to draw conclusions a lot of people are like show me the randomized human control trials all these things and you do want to go off data somewhat but the problem with that is all scientific studies are inherently flawed for oh, humans yeah. because we are all unique why are you saying what why are you saying that let's just say you know you give people a supplement 100 people 20 of them feel better 80 don't you run the statistics it's going to be a fail and eh, failed didn't work cancel it all the other people will say why using the supplement it doesn't work for this condition but we're all different if that supplement works by lowering histamine And let's just say it's a sleep study. Antihistamines are used to help people sleep. If people, the people that respond better to that histamine lowering drug or supplement, so they sleep better, they have genetic mutations that make their baseline histamine higher. But the ones that don't have that, they're not gonna respond as well. But we treat that whole thing as a failure. So that's why when I'm very hard on concepts, I'm not very big on math or honestly data. And that sounds crazy coming from a scientist. (laughs) But the way we study it is completely wrong. Just because it doesn't hit that mat, just because enough people in that study, it wasn't the right thing for them, that doesn't mean it doesn't work for anybody. So that's why if I see a mutation can raise histamine in a bacteria, and it's the same sequence that happens in a human, and I see that, I'll take that into account. You know, And again, when you're utilizing all natural things, there's not much risk involved with that. They also do that with, they do that in mouse studies as well. They give mice, you know, you can't really study depression in a, in a bacteria, you know, so they can give human mutated gene sequences into mice. They can make them express throughout the body or just in the brain and then study and do these different tests to see how the mice respond. So yeah. And then, and then with some of these other types of structural studies, you can kind of infer what some of these mutations will do. But again, like I was mentioning. If you have the dotted line here of like, all right, it's statistically significant. It works for all these people. Everyone views it as a yes or no, because there's a certain statistical level where it's like, this is significant. You know, it's a significant finding mathematically, but just because it doesn't hit that level. What if it's right below it down here? You cannot say it significantly helped anything. So with the second people here, not significant. They're like, they're tuned out. They don't care on the next thing, but that it doesn't mean it didn't help at all. Mm -hmm. So that's Mm -hmm. how everyone looks at things as did it work for everybody? Or is this the cause to this ailment? I challenge everyone to flip their thinking. Is this a contributor? One of many contributors. So if I see this mutation that affects histamine, and let's just say that gene, it uses vitamin C to function, which is true. One of the genes that break down histamine, I think it's the uh, the DAO enzyme for the gut histamine breakdown, uses vitamin C. If I see someone has a higher need for vitamin C genetically, they don't absorb it as well from another genetic mutation. You better believe I'm going to have them be taking vitamin C, not just for the overall vitamin C requirements, but for the histamine aspect there. And honestly, even if they don't have a higher need for vitamin C, doesn't mean I won't throw, you know, 100 milligrams or 200 milligrams in for them for that DAO enzyme support, if that makes sense. So you kind of see this network of different interacting genes.
1: Yeah, that's and I really agree with you. I think a lot of studies are flawed for a lot of reasons, but also a lot of times there's a motive for the studies. Yes, And so you can't you know it's unless you really understand what you're looking at and and how they ran their studies it's i think for the average human it is not an easy thing to decipher whether something is beneficial or not just based on was it a randomized controlled study and yeah. and what were the groups and you know and i think that's why there's so much so many question marks because you really have to understand what you're looking at in the first place and and also find the value like where you can probably look at it and they maybe the the study is thrown out but you could probably go in there and go yeah but look at this whole group of people that benefited from yeah. this it's interesting because i didn't know i had a histamine problem when i was sick i you know, they tested me and I was reactive to everything, but that's because I had Crohn's. And then when you and I were talking about my genetics, you were like, well, yeah, that would be a pre- precursor because you have a higher histamine in the gut. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that one of the doctors figured out is because for a little while I was taking Benadryl to sleep
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and
1: they were like, do you feel better? And do you sleep at night? And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, you've got a histamine. Situation.
0: Yeah. I yeah. was like, and that's the example oh. I like to give everybody, you know, Benadryl knocks people out it's an antihistamine you know so if that helps that means your histamine's high and there's levels to this you know not everyone has mcas you know it could even just be minor it could be minor gut issues i was at this networking thing in la last week and they had like you know finger food they had little little cheeseburger sliders and then they had little meatballs with tomato sauce on them and I wish I brought my DAO enzymes. I literally, to my wife, I was like, yep, this is the only food I have to eat. I'm a big boy. I got to eat. I got to do it. You know, there were <laughs> pickled onions on it and pickles. And I'm like, I'm starving. I'm just going to have this. I got brain fog, a little bit of stomach upset. That did pass. Then we went out. And when we got back to our Airbnb, this was probably at least five hours after I ate that, if not longer. To her, I was like. I am so up right now. Like it was probably like 2 a.m. I don't feel anxious, but like, I feel like I just woke up ready to crush the day. And again, the histamine is what regulates excitement and arousal and wakefulness. That's why antihistamines put people to sleep. So imagine if, you know, you just can't really sleep that well. It may not even be brain fog or anxiety or hives or noticeable bloating. It might just be your brain's just on a little bit too much. So then you go get a Xanax from the doctor. That'll put you to sleep, but you still have the high histamine, you know?
1: Or the people who live on adrenaline. I mean on yeah cortisol and
0: adrenaline, definitely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So so to back it up a little bit, I am high on the high end of cortisol. I'm on the high end of testosterone i don't do well with ashwagandha you know i've talked about mm-hmm. that before and actually i actually feel anxiety from it versus the calming effects that you're supposed to get but if you have high cortisol and you have high testosterone and i believe there are studies showing that ashwagandha can raise testosterone as well yes. i also think that these are things that women are not thinking about when they're jumping on these things yep. is like if you already have high testosterone genetically like i do you don't necessarily want to be taking herbs that are going to raise it even more yep. right yeah
0: and i think a lot of that too you know if you're lowering cortisol you're converting less cholesterol into cortisol mm. so you're going to be raising your hormones you know but yeah the hormone stuff is something i've been digging more into lately because up until maybe a month or so ago, I'll kind of address everything else but hormones. But through my research, I've been realizing I think so many people act like hormone replacement therapy is just like no big deal. And it's a root cause fix. When in reality, obviously, a lot of people know there's endocrine disruptors, you know, microplastics, which dysregulate things. But so you have cholesterol that gets converted into pregnenolone that gets converted into DHEA and that makes all your different sex hormones. Well, every single step and pretty much every pathway can be mutated. Mm. So I've been looking into mutations. What if you can't convert cholesterol into pregnenolone as well? You're going to have lower pregnenolone, lower DHEA, lower hormones, you know, exactly why they balance differently. That's a little more complex of a question, but if you can't convert cholesterol into pregnenolone as well, your root cause issue, maybe a pregnenolone deficiency. Pregnenolone is what, 10 bucks for like a month or two's worth over the counter. Or what if the pregnenolone to DHEA doesn't work as well? So your pregnenolone level's fine, but your DHEA isn't as high. DHEA makes a lot of sense for you. And, you know, I, it just, I worked with several clients that they wanted to get off the hormones. We figured that they had some of these mutations First things first, I always optimize everything else. So first things first, let's get your histamine in check. Let's get your methylation, vitamin, all these things that also help hormones. Phase one, month or two, you're feeling better. Now start weaning off the hormones, giving yourself pregnant alone, and you know sometimes people end up feeling better just on the bioidentical progesterone, which is fine. You know I'm not going to tell people how to live their life. That's fine. I don't think that's a. I don't think supplementing a low progesterone with progesterone is like a heinously foul thing. It's not damaging. But you get what I'm saying. If your issue is a pregnenolone issue, you're only fixing progesterone, not how your body naturally wants to make all of the hormones. So that's been something I've been diving deeper into as of late. And, you know, low testosterone, give them testosterone. That's not really the root cause fix. How is the stress? How is the sleep? Are you wearing polyester underwear? You know, is your methylation working? Vitamin D, all of these things are also tied to hormones. So I personally like optimizing all these other pathways first, making sure there's no deficiencies in upstream ingredients to make hormones. Try all of that. If your sleep's better, all these things, it's still low. I don't, I can't prescribe hormones, but I have no problem people doing that. It just bothers me when people are on high dose testosterone or progesterone and like, there's all these other checkboxes I think that should have been done beforehand rather than, oh, let's just skip all these steps and just give you exactly what's low when you might be low in that because the thing that makes that is low. So let's give you the top thing. Think about like, the trickle down economics, You know the trickle down effect of fixing that missing piece up here so everything else can fall into place.
1: And I love that approach. It's obviously there's many reasons to give somebody a precursor before you give them the thing, right? Yeah. It's like, how can you optimize upstream so that your body can do the rest of the work? Because I think at every stage, my philosophy is empower the body. If you yeah. can't empower the body, then you have to go directly to the source, but see if you can empower the body to do the work first, because the body wants to do the work, right? There may be an interference in mm-hmm. the process, like you're pointing out, but instead of just saying, okay, here's, testosterone, how do you optimize those pathways to create? Because a lot of times in giving somebody testosterone, it's not like it's just going to your libido, that's going to break down into estrogen. And Mm. where are your estrogen levels when you start the testosterone, right? It's definitely not as cut and clear as I think, you know, it can be made out sometimes. So I love that you're looking at that now because I think that's such a beneficial thing, especially for women, especially for this woman, 47 and a half. Okay, guys. And I'm headed into that. You're killing
0: it for 47 and (laughs) a half. You're doing something right.
1: No, it's all that good living. I've Mm -hmm. never been able to take um, a multivitamin without severe anxiety. And I guess that's, you know, we kind of touched on it a little bit with, you know, not breaking down adrenaline quickly, but are beyond that, is there any other cause you see in depression, anxiety, are those pathways breaking down adrenaline too slowly? Is that why they're anxious all the time? Is there histamines?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So real quick, I wanted to end the hormone thing by saying, guys, there those steps I mentioned, there are also mutations that the process, how you make testosterone from the precursor doesn't work as well. So there absolutely are people that their root cause is they can't make testosterone from the prior thing. So those, if you, if that is your issue, testosterone replacement therapy makes perfect sense for you. So, you know, I'm not saying that that makes sense for everybody. Everyone is different. I've had people that have lower pregnenolone genetically, and they have lower free testosterone genetically. Mm. They're already on TRT. And I tell them, listen, like, if you want, we could try adding pregnenolone, but like, you're not really on that wrong of a thing for you. You know, mm-hmm. it's just so everyone's aware, you know, some people, I'm not bashing all of HRT, but it's kind of like medications. I mean, to me, it is a medication. Like it, it's so many practitioners say, don't do vitamin D or melatonin, their hormones, yet they put their clients on on progesterone or testosterone like that, like the hypocrisy. I don't know if they're, doesn't make any sense, but yeah. So regarding the depression, anxiety type stuff, yeah, I want to start offering, you know, fragmented packages that are lower price points the problem is everything affects everything like histamine affects so many different things vitamin d could go in any panel you know because it mm. regulates so many different things but brain chemistry you know neuroscience would initially got me into all this i love how i could take a supplement that gives me more serotonin and i sleep better i feel in a better mood the next day If I take something that raises my adrenaline, I feel maybe great at the gym for an hour and then I'm miserable the whole day because I'm freaking out. Just the fact that those little changes can do all this to your perceived reality is really just uh, fascinating to me. I'm checking things, serotonin, dopamine, adrenaline, GABA, acetylcholine, but it's how your body makes them. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How sensitive are your cells to those things? So someone's serotonin levels may be fine. But again, if that one serotonin receptor doesn't work as well, they don't need a medication that raises overall serotonin. They need something that binds that specific receptor. I mentioned the CBD, not CBG, CBD or lavender, another serotonin receptor, One the HT2A, that's what psychedelics bind to. So like a microdose could make a lot of sense for you. And then there's also Cognant, is an herb, the Bacopa Monieri herb from Nootropics Depot, they concentrated a certain molecule in there that also can stimulate that receptor. So I tell people, you know, just throwing that. Nowadays, some people are like, yeah, I microdose or yeah, you know, I do that. That's cool. I can get some and do it, you know, like, but if I'm like, you know, you don't have to be doing that. You know, if you don't want to go down that road, that's totally fine. This is another supplement that could help with that specific receptor. So how sensitive are you to these things? How quickly do you break them down? And that's just the neurotransmitter side then you have methylation itself. Like that's a separate way that you make in order to make neurotransmitters. You need methylation to be online. You can't have it be making a bunch of glutathione. That's why a lot of people have horrible moods when they're undergoing a lot of detox and all these things. You're not making neurotransmitters, that brain fog. You're not really making the neurotransmitters because your methylation is like, okay, divert everything to make glutathione. We need more glutathione. Well, what happens when you burn through all the precursors for glutathione or the cofactors like the selenium or the folate? What happens? Your homocysteine goes up because your your methylation process is like, use all of our homocysteine for glutathione. And since we can't make any more right now, it's going to sit here. That's why glutathione really raises up. So, you know, you may need more glutathione precursors, other methylation support things. But yeah, the mental health stuff, you know, it's, believe it or not assuming there's no like stealth infections going on the low mood stress, anxiety stuff, I think is the easiest, you know, significant thing to fix. If that makes sense, because it's kind of just tweaking the brain chemistry there. But if they also have mold, you know, that's, they're only going to improve so much just by taking the right neurotransmitter support. If there's still mold going on, if there's still a moldy house, I can make them feel better, but you know, they pretty much all know that you're not going to, fully heal in a toxic environment.
1: Yeah, agreed. I, I know many clients who they feel like shit in their home. They know they're mold, but let's be honest, getting rid of mold out of your house is expensive. Like mm-hmm. it is not a cheap venture. And then they'll leave, they'll go to their parents' house or a friend's house for a couple of weeks and they feel better. So their yep. body is trying to process, but the onslaught, and maybe there's a genetic mutation at hand that's not allowing them to process. I know that there are genes related yep. to mold and because mold is everywhere, right? But not all mold is created equal. It's really tough. I'm curious your thoughts around Purins, which is a natural dopamine.
0: So I have had that and the the munica Prairians is actually an absolute nightmare for people that are prone to anxiety. So that I've had horrible reactions to that. So that is the direct precursor to make dopamine and adrenaline. So I remember there was one day I took a green tea extract, blocks the breakdown of dopamine and adrenaline. So you plug the bathtub. There was one day I took, I I forgot how I even messed this up on. This was a couple of years ago. I took green tea extract and then I took a pre-workout that had some of the munica prurians, the L-dopa in that. So think about this. The bathtub is plugged and I am dumping gallons of water, the exact ingredient to make adrenaline and dopamine. That was, I was literally like shaking like heart palpitations the entire day. Like literally like, Oh my, like, like, like losing my mind. I was supposed to go out in the city. I went all the way into the city, like hour and a half train, got to my friend's house. I was so like shaken. And I'm like, I'm gonna have to go to like, is that like a electronic concert? And I'm like, I gotta go home. We literally went all the way to the city just to go all the way. I ate the money for the tickets. I am like, I would not, they're like, no, have a few drinks. You'll be fine. I'm like, I know my body, nothing is shaking this. Like, like literally that heart, but you see that combination That was like one plus one equals eight because the bathtub wasn't plugged up. The L-Dopa could at least be broken down. All that adrenaline could be broken down. Yet I literally see pre-workouts all the time with green tea extract and L-Dopa. And I don't understand what human beings could take this. I think a lot of people aren't aware that they're even anxious so they kind of just go with it. But like, I could never have that. So the L-Dopa, they use that a lot for Parkinson's actually. I had a Parkinson's client. He got put on L-Dopa and we kept that in because that make, that does have a lot of efficacy for that. I told him, listen, if he's very anxious, then we should remove that L-Dopa. Mm-hmm. But he was doing okay. He got some improvements. But that's like, that to me feels even worse than just taking a rhodiola because, mm-hmm. let me think how to word this the L-DOPA will front load a lot of the adrenaline. So right away, you'll feel that. Rhodiola, anything that blocks the breakdown, that's more of a slow burn. As the day goes on, you're accumulating more and more dopamine and adrenaline. Hmm. So like I can feel okay on Rhodiola for a few hours then eventually it's a slow burn. And then no matter, I've tried the tiniest, tiniest dosages and I'll think I'm fine. But then always, no matter how little I take, getting ready to unwind before bed. And I'm like, nope, I could feel it. Like I could just tell I'm not, me i could tell it's i'm not freaking out but i'm sitting there trying to go to bed and like my heart's beating a little too nothing a little too fast i'm like nope throw it out not for me but yeah l-dopa again if you're very low on dopamine i guess that could help but the fact that there's it's a really hard way to well lithium can help you break down adrenaline so maybe combining l-dopa munica with lithium could maybe help but you just gotta be really really careful with it
1: Yeah. And you really need to be working with somebody skilled who understands both of those on a, on a deep chemical genetic level, Mm -hmm. because you're messing with hormones that, you know, so who is a good candidate for green tea? If it, if it's plugging.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it depends on the dosages. It depends on how concentrated it is. It depends on what other things you're having. I like to identify all my energy sources. So for me, it's my multivitamin with the right B vitamins for me. I like she legit. But like, if I take she or the multivitamin, my tolerable dose of green tea will be a lot lower. You get what I'm saying? Cause mm-hmm. it's overall energy. You need to know what your energy inputs are. What's going to give you more energy. I do candidate, you know, there's the thing is there's so many good health benefits of that. It can help with mitochondrial health, oxidative stress. It helps pull iron out of the body. So like my wife, she, she has genetically high iron. She absorbs excess iron. It's always very high. So, we have her on a little bit of uh, liposomal curcumin each day. You know, why not help a little bit more of inflammation and help pull that out of the body? So, I think someone that might have higher iron, that may be a little bit lower energy, then I would use that. But I'm gonna be honest, I haven't recommended green tea to someone. I tell people to avoid the green tea because a lot of people, like most people that I work with, are on the anxious side. And now, is that because the genes are that common or because if you have higher adrenaline and dopamine? you're more likely to be intellectually curious. You're more likely to be mindful and wonder what's happening to me. So you're more likely to seek out help. You're more likely to be your own detective and you're more likely to find someone like me. So you see how those personality types really influence who's gonna come in and work with me as well. If you're more prone to being anxious, you're gonna care more about your health.
1: Oh yeah, cause you just feel uncomfortable in your skin all the time. Wait, so what category do I fall into genetically?
0: I think you were the, I think you were higher as well, like higher dopamine, Anxious. higher adrenaline as well. I mean, I think too, because it also means higher dopamine, which correlates with confidence in putting yourself out there. I think most people that have podcasts or put themselves out there on Instagram, I think a lot of them are going to have that higher dopamine, which also comes with higher adrenaline just because we're creative people. It takes confidence to go and do this and put yourself out there, which correlates with higher dopamine.
1: Which is really interesting because other than Instagram, my podcast, I'm quite introverted. So mm-hmm. it's interesting because I'll extrovert in areas or, you know, because I am a high adrenaline person. Like I love working out. I'm strength training and moving. I'm outside. But in my personal life, I'm very selective about the people I see and share energy with and I'm more introverted. So it's, it's a really funny. Interesting- Were you always like that? I mean, I actually saw a friend right before the podcast. She stopped by. We, we've we been friends since high school. She was asking me all these questions that she's never asked me before. And she's like, I'm learning all of this stuff now. And I've known you for, you know, 30 years. And I was like, oh yeah, I guess I like I'm introverted. So it's interesting in the last 10 years of my life, I am very open, but I still am very reserved about who I connect with.
0: I'm definitely extroverted, <laughs> but I've been noticing lately being a highly sensitive person, I'm definitely starting to get a lot more selective or who I could tolerate being around. You know, just the energies of people around you, the body language, the tone, the things people talk about. I'm myself getting more and more sensitive to that. But like, not that I hate being by myself. I love being around other people, but I have noticed I'm getting a little more, I don't know if I'd call it more introverted, but definitely more selective overall, just because again, when I feel aligned with people around me, that high I get, you know, the feeling like there's nothing better than that. I really wish everyone on the planet could feel that. But on the flip side, when I don't feel comfortable around people, like in the environment or whatever, like I'm really musical. If I don't, the music doesn't, one bad song could just throw off my nervous system. And I'm (laughs) like, I got to like go outside. I got to, I got to like get things back into all cahoots and everything, just because it's that easy to be thrown off. And that's, you know, the downside to being a highly sensitive person, but Overall, like I said, I'd much rather feel more than feel less.
1: Yeah. And it also, I think that selectiveness that I'm talking about, I, there's only certain people I want to share energy with. Like I'm really selective about who I bring on the podcast because mm-hmm. I'm i I'm going to share energy with you for an hour yep. or so. You're great to interview because you're Thank receptive. You. Yeah, you are. You're so much fun. You have a lot, you have a, a deep knowledge base and you're receptive to all kinds of questions and you'll kind of just roll with it. And that's and that's fun because it feels more like a conversation than like an interview.
0: I don't know what I don't know and how my brain works. It probably happened a few times in this talk. Like you asked me a question and I'm like, huh, let me think. I'm like, snatch this idea, snatch that idea, snatch this one, put it together. And within 10 seconds, I have this idea about it. I may be wrong, but usually when I'm connecting all these different dots, when there's enough data points indirectly pointing somewhere, My accuracy rate has been very, very high just because, you know, enough stuff points together. That's got to be what the truth is.
1: There's a lot of validity to an educated guess. And when we talk about an educated guess, and I I do think that there are enough because we're all bio individuals working with a genetic melting pot, there is a certain amount of educated guess that's going to come into play with certain things, I believe. And you just want to make sure that the educated guess is coming from someone who's highly educated yes. on, in a broad field so that their accuracy is honed. You know, mm-hmm. it's like, so if you're going to somebody and they're taking an educated guess, but they're not highly educated, then you're it's it's not, that, probably, educated. It's not yeah. that educated. It's not that yeah. educated. It's going to get a little messy. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. I value your deep education in so many different areas. So, yeah, you're awesome. And thank you for coming back on. Is there anything else we didn't touch on today?
0: Yeah. I'm trying to think. I mean, I think that pretty much covers enough for now. I'm sure there'll be another one. Maybe we could get some questions from people next time and kind of do a Q&A like that. And, yeah. We uh, could also do
1: a live as well. We could do a live sometime where just be a live Q&A. Where yeah. We can,
0: can we, we could wing it and crush it every time. I feel we could go for five hours straight. No questions asked. I do
1: too. We have a um, good chemistry. <laughs>
0: yeah, for sure. But uh, yeah, like I said, anyone listening, you know, I don't only work with people that are very, very sick with EBV, mold, line, all these things. I work with people that, you know, just have some joint pain and they want to be able to hold their grandkids. Or, you know, they have a little brain fog a few days a week, not if they or some people are like, I'm in pretty good health. My blood work is normal. I just want to see how much better I could feel. So all different levels. I can't explicitly state my services can treat any diseases, but. I truly believe that every health ailment or disease has some genetic component that is related to, like I mentioned, vitamin D is linked to so many, pretty much every disease you could think of. What if you don't make enough from sunlight? What if you can't convert that form you're taking as well? What if your blood levels need to be much higher than someone else due to these mutations? So I think any ailment can be approved upon. I think anyone can benefit from working with me. Just depends on where you guys are at in your current health journey what you want again not everyone wants to be you know mr ceo dialed in 14 hours a day they may not need as much of these different tools and everything but yeah please feel free to reach out anyone that's interested in making launching the holistic genetic health mastery course that's going to be 12 weeks meeting twice a week 4 hours per week lectures taught by me live q and a sessions discussion starting from what is a cell to all these tips and tricks and ending with some spiritual healing stuff, trauma from the cell biology perspective, how to optimize spiritual health, but woo woo, but from the cell biology stuff rooted in a lot of peer reviewed science, basically everything I think is important for health. So that'll be for, even if you just want to be a self healer, if you are a self healer, if you're a biohacker, also practitioners as well, this is going to be a really good primer. You won't be able to launch your own genetics armor your company business with this course alone This is going to be a really good primer initial thing to get your feet wet and then i will eventually be having a practitioner training type thing where really you can learn how to implement some of these things so uh, thank you so much for having me on really hope everyone got some value out of this and everyone else have a great rest of your day
1: i want to let you go but now that you've said that i have a lot of clients with um, fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue Mm -hmm. so Do you, do you touch on any of that in your sessions with people?
0: Yeah. So I have helped people with chronic fatigue. I have had some, a few fibromyalgia clients. And you know, the thing is, is that I've really.
1: Any genetic. Yeah, absolutely.
0: You know, there's like, you can have mutations where you don't produce as much CoQ10. That's like Mm. the chronic fatigue. Mm. There's a lot of different ways. Obviously there's infections and stuff as well. Even if taking these supplements throughout the day. Can't bring it to a hundred percent. I'm very, very confident that you'll be able to get some degree of noticeable relief. But as we peel the layers of the onion, we can learn more and kind of go deeper over time. But I'm pretty sure fibromyalgia has a lot of links to histamine as well, actually. Mm-hmm. But again, it depends. Is that mostly a histamine issue? It could be uh certain B vitamins, it could be neuroplasticity. So a lot of different aspects. Is your fatigue due to an infection robbing the energy from you? Or could be mthfr or could it be a coq10 so all some people need more carnitine which is linked to energy production from fats so that may help as well so they're kind of you know all these different components if you have chronic fatigue and we see these then we'll try coq10 see how you do then we'll try uh, carnitine then maybe we'll try both i won't try both to start because i'd rather go up incrementally i don't want to have you too much energy too anxious
1: Great. I mean, that's a big one for women that I see is th- that's why I wanted to sneak it in there because mm-hmm. I see a lot of chronic fatigue. Uh, I mean, yep. just women who are absolutely burned out. So yep. it's great to know that you work with that as well. Um, thank you so much, Dr. Penzner. You're awesome. And uh, I will definitely have you back on. Uh, awesome. where, where can people find you? What's your Instagram handle? Yeah. I'll, so, I'll link it as well.
0: Yeah. At Dr. Tyler Pansner on Instagram, Twitter, Dr. Tyler Panzer on Facebook. I'm on LinkedIn as well. And then I think also what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna make, what do you want discount code to be for anyone coming from the podcast? Should we make it bean?
1: <laughs> yeah, you can make it bean. You can make it, yeah, let's say bean people.
0: Bean people, okay. <laughs> I'll run a discount code. I'll do a hundred dollars off for the one-on-one deep dive session. And I'll have that open for maybe two weeks after this launches. So if anyone can get a hundred dollars off to work with me there and yeah, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much for having me on.
1: Amazing. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I will have a healing story out for you very soon. Super inspiring. Working with thyroid and Hashimoto's beautiful, beautiful story of healing. And uh, again, if you are interested in my 12-week program, you can go to my website, yourgreat.com, and sign up for the waitlist. I will be linking all of Dr. Tyler Penster's information. If you are interested in reaching out to him and working with him, please let him know where you heard of him so that he can give you the discount. Mean people, thank you so much. And I hope wherever you are in this beautiful world, you are taking care of your amazing human body.